For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, what is the difference that 3.6% can make? A closer look at Tucson's black community. Author David Owen on the Colorado River and where the water goes. And exploring deep creativity with author Victor Shamas. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It's not really news that Tucson has a relatively small population that identifies as black. Census data shows that only represents 3.6% of the million people living here. But what does that number really mean for black Tucsonans? How does it affect their daily experience and sense of community despite the numbers? Next, Brenna Bailey has the story. When you ask people what it means to them to be black in Tucson, you'll get a mixed bag of responses. It's the knowledge that when people look at you, they see you and then you turn away and you're invisible to them. You just kind of know that everything's not going to be the same for you. My dad always told us, like, you're going to have to work 10 times harder than everyone else. To be in a place where there's 44,000 students, right, like it really, it surprises you every day. And to look around and see, like, in, on the mall, there's two, maybe three black people. That was Tani Sanchez, Mariah Barnett, and Hassam Farah. Each of them identifies as black, and each of them, by one way or another, has ended up living in Tucson. Barnett moved to Tucson from Sierra Vista when she was eight. She's now 18 and studies political science at the University of Arizona. Barnett identifies as biracial, half black and half white. She says it's a struggle sometimes, identifying with two races. I went to high school with all white people where I was like, you know, too black, too ghetto. And then I came here and like sometimes people will say things to me like, oh, that's the white side in you. Like, you wouldn't get it. Like, you're white. Barnett says she resonates more with her blackness than her whiteness, though, and always has. The political science student says at the end of the day, that's how non-black people have always perceived her anyway. What does being half white mean in America? And it means black. Like, it doesn't matter if you're like 25% white or like 75% white. Like, if you just have that one drop of black in you, like, you're black. I first meet Barnett at a meeting between Black Student Union and UA administrators. Here, you can hear the aspiring civil rights lawyer call out UA administrators for moving a group of Black students, herself included, out of their dorm earlier this semester. Administration and people in higher-ups haven't really cared about this program. I mean, the last dorm we lived in, there was a rat on the floor. Never got dealt with because it wasn't wasn't an accentuating circumstance. Um, We get into this dorm, and for like the first four days we all lived there, none of our cat cards worked, so we had to wait outside the building until someone opened the door to let us in. Had the floor that we were moved out of all been athletes, like football players or basketball players, would this have happened? Some context. At the end of last semester, university administrators moved the students, who were part of the UA's themed dorm community for incoming black freshmen, out of their original hall, the one under the football stadium. They only gave them two weeks' notice. Administrators say they did this in order to ensure Arizona Stadium renovations would be done before next football season. 
and they didn't mean to inconvenience the freshmen they displaced. Barnett says it was, to say the least, an inconvenience. So we had been living out of boxes the last two weeks of the first semester and the first two weeks of the second semester. So we basically had to live out of boxes for a month while trying to study for finals and get classes started. The university's handling of the situation wasn't surprising, though, Barnett says. As a half-black, half-white woman, she says she's been treated like an afterthought her whole life. The high school that I went to, Marana High School, um, is basically out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by cotton fields. So, you know, I got the go pick cotton, I got told that. Um, I had people throw pencils in my hair, because I have really curly hair, and um, I had been called the N-word, like, too many times to count. Barnett says the day-to-day -day racism she experienced at school worsened her senior year at Marana High. That was during and after the 2016 presidential election. Some white students waved Confederate flags at traffic before and after school. They said they were exercising their First Amendment rights, according to Barnett. They wore the flag draped around their shoulders during classes, and they used nasty, racist language more than ever before. Going to school quickly became mentally draining for Barnett. She says that compelled her to tell school administrators about the injustice she was experiencing on a daily basis. If something like that's happening, I'm not one to bite my tongue on that. But her outspokenness drew a target on her back. Marana High Principal David Mandel ended up banning the Confederate flag on campus, and some pro-flag students blamed Barnett for it. They started harassing her. They wrote the N-word on her car, heckled her as she left school, and attacked her on Twitter, tagging her in tweets that said, No one calls you the N-word, you're just making this up for attention. Like, if you're afraid to walk to your car in Marana, Arizona because of racist. BSU President Hassan Farah says he, too, has been the target of racist jokes, insults, and remarks throughout his time living in Tucson, especially at school. He says in high school, some of his peers at Basis Tucson North called him the whitest black kid. And at the U of A, he says administrators routinely ignore black students' calls for better inclusion. Even though student activists from BSU and other campus groups outline exactly what they want and need time and time again. It does a lot of damage to your psyche to be able to say, like, is this even possible? Farah, whose parents immigrated to Tucson from Somalia in the 70s, goes out of his way every day to immerse himself in the UA's black community, whether that's at BSU meetings or just hanging out in the African American Student Center. He says he didn't really find this sense of community, which was something he had been looking for his whole life until his last couple of years at the U of A. As a freshman, as a sophomore, I never had a black community around me. I never had a black community around me growing up outside of my family. So to be a part of this and be welcomed into this group uh, was pivotal to my growth. And it makes you look and see, okay, this is what it's all about. You know, like there are students here like me who are going through the problems that I'm going through. But he says community alone isn't always enough to quell the anxieties associated with being black in predominantly white spaces like the U of A. You sit in your classes, there's 300 students, and you don't want to seem like you're uneducated, so you sit in the front row, and you're like performing for everybody else in the room to kind of combat a stereotype that you think they have of you. Debbie Chess Maybe is a community impact fellow at the UA's College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. She is working with the Dunbar Coalition to turn Tucson's only historically segregated school, the Dunbar School, into a cultural center focused on Tucson's black community. 
She agrees with Farah. It can be exhausting to live here as a black person. You kind of just want to be able to walk down the street, go to the grocery store, go to the club or whatever, and not think about it. You know, not think about whether or not you're going to see folks that look like you or have shared interests with you or so yeah it's a little bit exhausting having to work that hard to find cultural community chess maybe says here in tucson if you want to create a community of like-minded black friends you really have to be intentional about it there's no room for being passive or shy especially if you're middle-aged like her in chicago you know you could be a shy introvert and you could just just by the nature of where you live you come in contact uh, every day and you're bound to have conversation and what have you. But here, you have to socialize. You have to get out. You have to, you have to be like super sleuth. Chess maybe says if you want to see black culture and community more widely represented in spaces outside those specifically created for black people, though, you have to get out of Tucson. She realized this a couple years ago when she took her kids to a Phoenix Art Museum exhibit featuring work from Kahinda Wiley, the acclaimed Brooklyn-based artist who painted Barack Obama's presidential portrait. And my children were blown away by that exhibit. They saw these regal-looking African-American people, African people, African diasporic people that looked just like them, looked like their cousins and their uncles, and their grandmas and all of that, right? It Mm -hmm. was so affirming of who they are. And my daughter says, why do we have to drive all the way to Phoenix to see this? I don't know, why do we have to drive? UA Africana Studies professor Tani Sanchez says this is how it's been in Tucson ever since she has lived here. Sanchez has published books documenting her family's history here in Tucson. She says her research and her own experiences growing up here in the 1970s show black community didn't used to be as difficult to find. It was, it felt really connected back then in a way that I don't think it is today. Uh, Segregation was just ending, so you still had all of these black clubs doing uh, tea parties and other functions, and that still goes on today. But there was more a sense of knowing people Sanchez agrees with Chess Maybe. If you want to more easily find displays of Black and African-American community and the people who created them, you have to get out of Tucson and Arizona in general. She says moving away for a stint to New Orleans, a predominantly Black city, was one of the most affirming experiences she has ever had in terms of her identity. To start living that reality was just sort of important for me. It was kind of a turning point, not in terms of understanding hypocrisy or racism, because how can you escape that if you're black? But just in terms of looking at what it's like to live in an extended period of time without that racial pressure. Sanchez continues. You're going to realize that people have no idea about what black history entails. They have no idea about what white history entails for that matter. They do not recognize obvious acts of racism and that is not limited to just one race. There are many people who do not understand or appreciate black people. 
You can find an extended version of this story on our website, azpm.org. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Brenna Bailey. New Yorker staff writer David Owen has published more than a dozen books covering the invention of the Xerox machine, the rise of golf prodigy Tiger Woods, and he's even gone undercover as a high school student. Owen will be speaking this weekend at the Tucson Festival of Books about his latest work, Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. Vanessa Barchfield started her interview by asking Owen why he chose the river as his topic. I had written a number of articles and books about the environment, and I'd always been interested in water, but it's such a huge topic that I hadn't been sure how to approach it. And it occurred to me that one way to make it manageable would be to follow a river from beginning to end. And the uh, Colorado is ideal for that, uh, partly because it's it's long, but not too long. And uh, even more uh, interesting is the fact that we use it all up. It's incredibly important to millions of people in the United States and in Mexico, uh, and so much so that there's that it doesn't get all the way to the end. You know, only once since the 1990s has, has it actually flowed all the way to its uh, to its normal outlet at the northern end of the Gulf of California. You mentioned sort of how complex water is. I've spent the last year traveling along the river as well and, and you know, really studying it. And the more I learn about it, the, the more I'm starting to think of, of learning the river as like learning a foreign language. Yeah. How did you how did you strike a balance between writing about this really complex topic while also making it sort of simple enough for people who don't speak the language of the river to understand? It's a challenge, and you're exactly right. I, I play bridge, and it reminded me of bridge, where every time I learn something new about bridge, I feel as though I know less. And it's the same with the river. The Western water problems seem really simple until you begin to look into them and learn about them, and then you realize that every solution creates this sort of cascading series of other problems. So the, sort of the, more, you, uh, the more you find out, the, the less you feel you know. Uh, and in some ways, I think it's an advantage to come to uh, a an issue like that without really knowing very much about it to begin with because you know I I met so many people who are experts who spent decades working in the river and and they're so they're kind of lost in the minutia of whatever their specialty is so that they you know they they've they've delved so deeply into details that they that they almost can't talk about the the river in a general way anymore in a way that that um, somebody who knows nothing about it can understand. You really have to you really have to kind of hammer away at it. So I think in some ways I think it's an advantage if you're trying to explain Western water problems to people who know nothing about them. Uh, it doesn't hurt to come at it from someplace other than than deep decades long expertise. Your book is rich with characters and scenes. Can you tell me about one moment that was particularly sort of eye-opening to you or that, that, that you still think of? Well, there, there were many. And the, the, um, I think one of the most interesting people that I met along the river was a farmer in the Imperial Valley in Southern California 
and you see, you very often hear people say, well, you know, we we it's easy to uh, solve Western water problems. You know, stop stop growing hay and shipping it to China. Stop growing almond trees. Stop growing almonds. You know, all these these thirsty activities. But you know, again, as with so many other issues involving water and the river, you see that the issues are more complex. The Imperial Valley looks like a crazy place to grow stuff because it's desert. It doesn't get any rain. On the day that I arrived there to to visit this farmer, it rained a tiny bit. And I told him, I said, you know, maybe I deserve credit for helping to bring an end to the California drought. And he said, you know, we really don't like rain. It, it interferes with all our plans. And, and in fact, one of the reasons that the Imperial Valley is such a productive agricultural area is that they know exactly what the weather is going to be you know, not just today and tomorrow, but but months from now. And so he could show me planting schedules. He knew exactly when he was going to plant everything that he was going to grow, and he knew exactly when he was going to harvest it all because he he knew in advance what the weather was going to be. Uh, in my part of the country, in the Northeast, farmers have nothing like that. And you can have a you can have a whole year's crop that's wiped out by by a bad winter. Uh, and the only element that's missing for a farmer from the Imperial Valley is water. And you know, when they bring that in, then it has all these other advantages. One of them is that they get more than one growing season a year. The land is incredibly productive. That makes that turns farming into a year-round job, not just for the the guy who owns the farm, but also for the farm workers who work for him, and for the community that supports all those people that that supplies them. And, and uh, so it's as with everything that I learned about the river, it's it's much more complex than it seems from the outside. Now, you're not from this region, but you have spent a whole lot of time here traveling along the river, of course. How do you think the river is sort of most misunderstood by the average Westerner? Oh, the, I think, you know, it's, it's probably Westerners aren't necessarily at, at much of an advantage over people from the East in, in, in understanding how the river works, because an astonishing number of the people whose lives depend on the Colorado River live hundreds of miles away from it. Water from that river is moved in all directions out of out of its drainage basin into places far away. So there are people in Los Angeles and Salt Lake City and Phoenix and Tucson don't even necessarily realize that they're getting water from the Colorado River because in, in all those cases it, the, the river itself is several hundred miles away. Uh, so it's um you know they need they need education about it too, including people sometimes who work in in water who don't realize exactly where their water comes from. Um, you know, I think we take water for granted. No matter where we live, we take water for granted until it's not there, and then it becomes becomes a crisis. And, and, and during the past, oh, I don't, you know, 15 years, people in the West have been have been quite aware of water because there have been shortages, and there have been people have had to change the way that they uh, they live and and how they use water just because of the the ongoing drought. And um, but you know, most of the time, most of us we we just ignore it, and we just we just turn on the tap when we want it, and flush our toilets and wash our car and, and not think about it. You can hear more of the conversation with David Owen on our website, azpm.org. Owen will speak at the Festival of Books Saturday at 2.30 at the National Parks Experience Tent. There's a tendency to think that ideas and insights arise from the independent genius of individuals. But this assumption is never aligned with the experiences described by artists that have lived and created in every era and every part of the world. 
It limits our understanding of the process and does not qualify as a valid scientific theory for reasons that I will soon explain. Instead, I want you to consider a bold alternative, which is that every human creation throughout history can be attributed to a single source. Whether we consider Mozart's symphonies, Edison's inventions, Frida Kahlo's paintings, Ernest Hemingway's novels, or Maya Angelou's poetry, the ultimate source is the same. There has only ever been one creator, a single consciousness inhabiting myriad forms. What is creativity? Where does it come from? And how does it work? These were questions that Victor Shamas sought to reevaluate in a quest for answers in his book Deep Creativity, Inside the Creative Mystery. Shamas recently retired after two decades as a psychologist at the University of Arizona, and he's embraced many ancient traditions in his journey. Deep Creativity is a first-person approach to the study of creativity that focuses on the experience of inspiration. That experience is where the action is. Edison said that genius is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. But I say, without that inspiration, all you have is sweat. So that's where the action is in this book, and that's what Deep Creativity is about, exploring that moment of inspiration. Tell us more about that 1% inspiration. What does it consist of? I think there are three elements to it. In inspiration, we know there's passion, that there's this intense emotional component, but there's also presence, which is, I am fully alive, aware, engaged at this moment. Uh, there's a freshness to it. This is the first moment, this is the last moment, it's the only moment. And then there's possibility. The moment is pregnant with possibility because I feel at those moments that I have clarity, I have access to vast possibilities, to entire universe of thought. And that's what I feel when I create. I know from speaking with you that this book took, you say, 30 years to come to fruition. Along that journey, what was something that you found out about creativity that really changed your perspective, something profound that came to you in that 30-year span that made you rethink the nature of creativity itself? For me, the most revolutionary idea was that there's only one source of creativity in this universe, not seven billion. And that source just happens to be inhabiting seven billion of us. At moments when we are inspired and we create, we can feel that connection to that one source. And when you do that, it simplifies the whole understanding because instead of trying to figure out seven billion different minds, you just have to understand how those minds connect to that one creative source. It also explains all kinds of things, like how come so many people arrive at the same discoveries at the same time? Newton and Leibniz came up with calculus at the same time, or Priestley and Lavoisier discovered oxygen. How did that happen? Sure, it might have been a sign of the times, culture, a lot of minds converging on ideas, but what if it turned out that those individuals were tapping into the same source at the same moment in time? What about the age of the person involved? Some people, maybe because they're discouraged by an unkind teacher, decide, oh, well, I can't draw, I can't sing. I don't believe that I have those impulses in me. The first thing is to liberate yourself from the idea that the product matters. 
So for me, it's about process. It's about the experience. So when I get people together to draw, we scribble. When I get people together to sing, we we scream and yell and yelp and make sounds. And anybody at any age can do that. Sure, we get more rigidified in our way of thinking as we get older, but we don't have to be that. I know so many people who are just the opposite. In a way, that's what wisdom is, really, is wisdom is when you come back to the innocence of youth with a little bit more knowledge and experience from all your years. So I see creativity as something that's available to us at any point in our life. I'm a big fan of movies. People who listen to the show know that well about me. Although I'm not particularly into action films, I've always loved Bruce Lee. And lo and behold, there's a significant part of a chapter about Bruce Lee. How did he become a part of this book for you, Victor? I feel that Bruce Lee, besides being an actor, besides being a martial artist, was was a profound philosopher. And he had a lot to say about deep creativity, about these ideas. He understood that you have to empty yourself, that you have to be receptive, that you can't force things to happen, but you can position yourself to to take advantage of serendipity, of of fate. Things happen in this moment and you seize upon whatever comes your way. He just understood how to flow with the experience of the moment in a way that I think is extremely relevant to the ideas in deep creativity. Give us a quick example of someone else who served as a major inspiration that you write about in the book. Albert Einstein. Einstein is amazing. He said, the intellect has little to do on the road to discovery. Now think about that. I mean, you're talking about Einstein, one of the great intellects in human history, and he's telling you, you know, when I make discoveries in this world, my intellect isn't playing a part in it. I'm tapping into something else. And he said, in this way, in this sense, I'm a religious man. His view of imagination, in my mind, changed the way physics is done. He didn't sit down and do calculations first. He took a ride on a beam of light. And that is inspiring to me. He said, imagination is more important than knowledge. Imagination encircles the world. What that means is our imaginations can take us anywhere. This is really exciting because to me it says that whatever we think we're capable of knowing, there's so much more. Because I ask you, I would ask anybody, is there a place in this universe where your imagination cannot take you? If you say, no, I don't think there is. I think my imagination can go anywhere. That means that everything in this universe is accessible to you. Einstein understood that. That's very inspiring. Victor Shamas will talk about his book, Deep Creativity, Inside the Creative Mystery, at the Festival of Books on Saturday, March 10th at 1 p.m. in the Integrated Learning Center. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.